I wonder if uh, any of you here have ever had one of those moments where someone has confronted you over some reckless behavior or over some character flaw and really laid it on the line saying to you that you have to change. Has that ever happened to you? Okay, if, if you're married, uh, that tends to happen quite a lot uh, in my experience. Um, but how do you normally respond to those situations? Now, when someone confronts you, what, what is your normal reaction? What, what's the off-the-cuff response that you have? Uh, because normally what happens is we go into defense mode. Uh, we become that expert lawyer, able to mount a whole heap of arguments and cases to prove our innocence. And uh, we might even turn the tables on our accuser and point out all the flaws in them in order to get ourselves off the hook. Uh, you see, there is something in each one of us that earnestly resists seeing the mistakes and the flaws in our own character, even when they're obvious to others and especially uh, to those who know us uh, the best. Uh, we would certainly, we would prefer to bury those things, to not have to deal with them, to not seek the change that God wants in us. You know, we, we would rather uh, just leave them be, don't touch them, rather than actually seeking that, that change that will actually last. And, you know, the Israelites were in that very situation at this point in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, they were having one of those moments where they would prefer just to bury something, leave it alone, don't worry about it, move on. And uh, that, that's what was going on in this chapter. See, at this point, every one of the Israelites are all gathered at a place called Gilgal. They've just made Saul the king. And leading up to this moment, though, there's been all of this tension over what type of king Saul will, will be. Remember, the people asked for a king like all the nations. That's what their request was. And behind that was this, this desire to displace God. You know, they were, they were sick of having God as their king, all the rules, the regulations. They wanted to be free of all of that. They looked at the nations and they thought, you know, that's, that's power. That's, uh, that's what we want. We want to be like them. And so they requested a king like all of the nations. And, uh, you know, God's intention was for them always to have a human king, but one that would rule under him. And so he's given them that king. Uh, that's what Saul is. Saul is to be kind of like a, a vice king, a king under a greater king. Uh, but now with this king in place, it's time to deal with the tension. It's time to get things sorted out. It's time to confront. Because it seems like the people still haven't recognised how offensive uh, their, their request was. They haven't recognised just how disastrous this attitude was of actually rejecting God as their king. And so in chapter 12, Samuel, he makes this huge speech and what he is doing, he's confronting them. He's helping them to see the error of their way. Because unless they recognize it, and unless they change their attitude, that wrong attitude will go on hindering their relationship with God, and it just won't work. But he also wants them to see that there is a way forward. There is a way in which they can deal with their sin and move uh, forward. And so in the speech... We'll break it up into three parts. There's an accusation, there's an awakening, 
and an assurance. And because God is still the king today, then those three things, the accusation, the awakening, the assurance, they're things that we need to look at today and think, can those same things be true of us? Is there something that we need to deal with uh, today? So let's work through these things. So the first is this accusation, which is in verses 1 to 12. And the accusation, it comes across like a court case. It's like Samuel has rounded everyone up and he goes, right, let's let the trial begin. Okay, because he wants to expose the, the, the problem uh, behind the people's requests for a king. And so in verses 1 to 5, you would have noticed there as we read it that Samuel was, uh, he, he put himself on trial. He got the people to cross-examine him in order to prove his innocence. Now he says things like, have I stolen anyone's ox? Have I defrauded anyone? Have I oppressed? In other words, have, have I used my position as a judge for my own benefit at your expense? Have I, have I done any of that? And the people all testify, no, no, you, you are squeaky clean. You've done everything right. You're innocent. Why does Samuel want to prove his innocence? To show them that their request for a king, like all the nations, was not because that there was something wrong with the current leadership. Okay, God had put Samuel in place. He was doing uh, what he was supposed to do uh, very well. And so in one sense, they didn't need a change in leadership. What God had supplied was fine. It was working. So next in verses 6 to 12, uh, Samuel, he reverses the roles. He now puts the people on trial. He becomes the cross-examiner. And in fact, he kind of like puts both the people and God on trial. And he says, let's just have a look at this. Let's see who's in the wrong. Uh, verse 7, he says, Therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, let's examine your actions in light of God's actions. And you're going to see that, that the Lord, he is righteous in all of his ways. And so Samuel, he does that by bringing out the evidence. And there's three, three parts of the evidence or, or you know, exhibit A, B and C. It's kind of like a court case. So, you know, bring in exhibit A, in it comes. What is exhibit A? It is, in verse 8, God's rescue of the people from Egypt. That when the people were in Egypt, they cried out to God. God delivered them by raising up adequate leaders in Moses and Aaron. And he rescued them. That's exhibit A. He moves on in verses 9 to 11. Exhibit B, this time, the time of the judges. And what happened in that time? There was a cycle that went over and over. The people were threatened by some enemy. They cried out to God. God raised up a leader and rescued them. And that happened over and over again. They faced a threat. They cried out. God rescued them. Threat, cry, rescue. Threat, cry, rescue. Over and over. In every time God had proved that he was reliable, that if they ever needed help, they could cry out to him. He would always rescue them. He proved his faithfulness time and time again. But then we have exhibit C, and that's in verse 12. So have a look at verse 12. It says, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. So notice what happens this time. 
Notice how the cycle is broken. Okay, again, there's a threat. This time it's Nahash the Ammonite. But the cycle's broken in that there's no crying out. The people never turn to the Lord. Instead, they ask for something new, a whole new leadership structure. Uh, they, want, they want a solution to their troubles to come from a king, okay? Which was saying, not you, God. They don't want the Lord anymore to reign over them. And with all of that, Samuel could say, I rest my case. Okay, it's pretty clear what the accusation is. God has been faithful. There's no trouble there. But the people, they have been unfaithful. They've rejected the one who time and time again had saved them. You know, the way Samuel um, exposes the Israelites here, it actually reminds me of the time when, uh, you know, you might have a child who um, chucks a tantrum over not getting their way. And in their anger, they, they say to their parent, you know, I don't, don't want you to be my parent anymore. Okay, and, and the parent's standing there thinking, what? <laughs> After all I have done for you, and this is the thanks I get? That's the way the Israelites were treating God. God had proved his faithfulness to them over and over again. He'd supplied all of their needs, looked after them so well, despite their continual wandering, despite all of their complaining, despite all of their rebellion. Even, you know, he would discipline them. He would restore them to himself. He was relentless in his pursuit of their well-being. And yet, despite all of that, when this latest threat comes along, they, just, they say, we don't want you anymore. What good are you to us? They look elsewhere for help. They didn't want God as their king. That's the accusation. And the question, though, is can that accusation be leveled against us today? Because God is our king. But how have we treated God as our king? Is it possible that we've treated God in the same way that the Israelites did? I just want to think that through for a moment. See, the Israelites, they faced a crisis. And they thought to themselves, God's no use to me in this one. I wonder if that's ever, has that ever happened to you? Where you have faced some crisis in your life and, and you, you haven't prayed about it because you've, you've thought to yourself, God's actually let me down, so what's the point of going to him? Or perhaps uh, you've, you've faced some crisis and you've only turned to God as a last resort, you know, after every other option has failed. Which, if you think about it, that's something that even unbelievers do. Even unbelievers turn to God as a last resort in their troubles. Or perhaps some of you here are going through a struggle at the moment and it actually hasn't crossed your mind that your answer is cry out to God. That's the answer. But we very easily forget that. You know, our prayerlessness, it actually does reveal that we don't trust in the Lord that we actually trust in ourselves, that we think that we can solve our problems. We actually don't need the Lord. Or maybe uh, for us that the real issue is we're trusting in other things other than the Lord. You know, so we might feel like so long as we have a good bank balance that, that we're secure, that we can get by okay. Or perhaps uh, you're trusting in your, your health, 
Okay, well, your health is fine. You don't bother God. As soon as something comes along, then you might cry out. Or perhaps your real pursuit in life is not in knowing and loving God, but in some worldly ambitions. Uh, possessions, entertainment, a particular quality of life. Which is just another way of saying that these things are your real king. The Lord isn't king, it's these other things. Well, maybe there's something in your life that, that you know God tells you is not right, that it needs to be dealt with, but you've put it off because you just can't bring yourself to let go. Again, it's rejecting God as king. It's saying, you know, I'm happy for you to be king over some parts of my life, but not all of it. I still want to retain my own authority. See, that's the accusation. Have you rejected the Lord? Have you been unfaithful to him? That's the accusation. But notice in the, in the passage, the accusation is followed up by what I'm going to call an awakening. An awakening. And by an awakening, I actually mean that sometimes an accusation might be um, true and correct, but you don't feel it. Okay? It might be a, a, um, a very clear diagnosis of the um, struggle of your heart. And yet you don't feel the force of it. You, you still have your defences. You still have your arguments for why you can kind of like deflect that accusation. And so what, what you actually need in that situation is to be awakened. Uh, you need to be shaken out of your indifference so that you actually listen to what God is revealing to you. And that's what Samuel does for the Israelites in verses 13 to 19. And he does it in two ways. Uh, first, in verses 13 to 15, if you look at that passage, what Samuel does there, he reminds the people of the terms of their covenant relationship with God. He just takes them back to what is the basic structure of their relationship with the Lord. Like, like how does it work? How does it work being in a relationship with God? That's, that's what verses 13 to 15 are. And uh, he says in verse uh, 14 that, you know, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, it'll all go really well. That's what God saved you for. So when you do that, that's, that's how you enjoy your relationship with God. But then in verse 15, he says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So what Samuel's doing, he's saying... Look, the leadership structure has changed. That's true. But nothing else has. Okay, you're still in this covenant relationship with God. You're still in this, this situation where God has saved you. He's made you his treasured possession. And therefore, that calls you to live in a certain way. It calls you to live in obedience uh, to the Lord. Okay, even with the king, it hasn't changed. Even the king is with, he's, he's put into this structure coming under God's authority uh, to live, well, really to love God and obey his commands. That's what life is about. And the way God's uh, covenant worked, at, at, you know, for blessings for obedience, curse for disobedience. That was true for the people and the king. And so really nothing has changed with the installation of a king. But then in verses 16 to 18, 
Samuel wants to, the people to realise that God is serious about this. Okay, the, the, God's call to love and obey him. It's not just a nice suggestion. It's not an optional extra. But this is actually what he has saved you for. And the reason Samuel is pointing all of this out is to help the people see that this latest act of unfaithfulness, this request for a king, which was really a desire to get rid of God as king, that's not something that can be ignored. It's not something that can be left undiagnosed and untreated. It must be dealt with. It must be repented of. That's an attitude that has to go. It cannot remain. Because you cannot go on in a relationship with God while there is unconfessed sin. It just doesn't work like that. And to get their attention, to really wake them up, look at what happens in verses 16 to 18. Uh, Samuel says, Now therefore stand still and see the great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? Uh, what does that mean? That means it's the dry season. Over in that part of the world, it didn't rain at this that time of year. And uh, then Samuel says, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves for a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. See, the, the point of the thunder and rain, it's, it's to get the Israelites' attention. It's that, that to help them realise that God's words are not just empty threats. They're not just words that you can go, yeah, yeah, whatever. You've got to take them seriously. And so this thunder and rain, it, it, it wakes them up to the seriousness of the things of God. Kind of reminds me of a, um, well, I shouldn't say remind, it's, it's, it's kind of like, imagine if, um, imagine a group of students who are in a classroom and uh, their teacher has become very frustrated because the students just don't take the work seriously. All the homework, it's all half-hearted. You can tell they have not put no effort in. And he's tried to address it a number of times by just telling them, come on, you need to lift your game. You've got to take this seriously. They've ignored him. And so one day the class gathers uh, in the morning and he says to the students, righto class, today we're going to go for a walk. So he takes the students out of the classroom across the school grounds to the very other side of the, the school to an open area where he has previously prepared a little fire. And the students think, oh, this is lovely. We'll stand by the fire and get warm. Uh, but this, the teacher has under his arm a folder with all of the students' latest homework. And he takes out the first one. He reads the name and he throws it on the fire. Takes out the second one, reads the name, and he throws it on the fire. And he does that for the whole class. And the class sit there watching all their their half-hearted homework go up in flames. And he says to them, do you now get the point? Do you understand what I've been trying to tell you? See, in a way, that's what God is doing here. Okay, saying, you can't ignore my words. That's the point of the thunder and the rain. It's like the fire. Because the people, they were in danger of thinking that because they got a king... And because God has turned it into a workable arrangement, they were thinking that that meant that it didn't matter. 
that they had rejected the Lord, that it didn't matter if they were unfaithful to him. They thought they could just carry on as if everything was fine. But it shows that God does care, that the attitude cannot go on. There must be repentance. And so the thunder and the rain, that's the wake-up call. Wake up. Wake up to your sin. Wake up to your unfaithfulness. And do you realise it's actually no different today? He's the same holy God. Now, he's the God who has saved us for a life of faith and obedience. That's why God has saved us. And, you know, the New Testament, it doesn't hold us back in waking us up to the seriousness with which we need to take God's word. The seriousness that we need to take this call to obedience uh, just to give you one example, let's have a look at Ephesians 5, uh, verse 5 to 6. Uh, Sharif read for us earlier, but just listen to the way that, that um, Paul speaks here uh, to the church in Ephesus. He says, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, you know, you might think I'm picking on the sexually immoral, but there's also the idolaters in there, which is anyone who, who replaces God with something else, you know, makes something else your main pursuit in life. But notice the wording here. Let no one deceive you with empty words. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes. What, what is Paul doing there? This is the thunder and the rain. This is saying, wake up. Okay? And it is easy. to. We know what God's word says, and yet we think, oh, look, we'll deal with that another day. I've got more important things to do now. No, wake up. Let no one deceive you with empty words. You need to deal with this now. It's never a hollow threat. You've got to get serious about turning from your sin. And so for you today, if there is something in your life that you know God has, has put his finger on and said, this has to go, this has to change. Okay? And if you're in that situation, you still haven't done anything about it. You're still hanging on to that. You need to wake up. You need to wake up. Okay? And the question is, what does God need to do to wake you up? What does he need to do to get you to, to actually act? What is the thunder and rain that needs to happen in your life? Maybe it could be God using someone to actually confront you. Or maybe the thunder and rain moment could be your life unraveling and you realise you can't keep going down that path anymore. But the point is, why wait for that to happen? Why not deal with it right now? Just by hearing God's word tell you to take it seriously. See, it's time to wake up. That was the word to the Israelites. That's God's word for us today. Wake up. Okay, deal with sin. Turn from it. Turn back to God, to obedience. Well, the accusation and the awakening, it had the right effect on the Israelites that day because we read in, at the end of verse 18 uh, that the people uh, greatly feared the Lord and Samuel 
And then in verse 19, it says, All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. See, they now get it. And what does God do in response? Okay, what does God do to a people who have sinned against him? A people who have rebelled against him, who have been unfaithful to him. What does God do to them? What does God do to a people who now realize their sin and confess it to him? What does God do? He speaks a word of assurance. Okay, he speaks assurance. That's in verse 20 to 25. And it's a wonderful assurance because it speaks of God's grace to sinners who turn from their sin. It speaks of God's faithfulness to his promise to forgive. And in doing so, these verses actually lay out a path for us today in how to, to deal with, our own, uh, with sin in our own lives. So there's three parts. The first one goes like this. When you've realised your sin, don't turn away from God at that point. Turn back to him because he won't turn from you. Okay, that's the point of verses 20 to 22. You know, Samuel says to the people, do not be afraid, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn aside after empty things that can't profit or deliver, for they are empty. Uh, do you know, th there is always a danger that, that when you have um, fallen into sin and, and, and God exposes that, uh, there is a danger that at that point you will actually turn away from him. You know, it might be because you're so overwhelmed by your failing and, and, and so grieved by, you know, that, that sense of, oh, I've done it again. And you start to think there's no hope for change. And so you feel depressed about it and you think, oh, well, I'll just, I'll run away from God. How, why would he want me back? Or it might be that, you think to yourself that God actually won't have me back until I first clean up myself, until I make myself more fit for his presence. And so you turn away from him until you think that might happen. Or you might feel despair over the way you're feeling about your failings and actually go looking elsewhere for comfort, you know, looking for something that will numb the pain to that, numb that sense of despair. Uh, the empty things, as, as Samuel talks about in that verse, but hear what God says. His word through Samuel is, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Do you see the balance there? On the one hand, God doesn't minimize our sin. He says, you have done all this evil. And yet he says, do not be afraid. How can he say that? It's because of who he is, because he is this merciful and compassionate God, a God who is willing to forgive, ready to restore you. And why can he do that? Well, the answer is in verse 22, where it says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Do you realize what that verse is saying? It's saying that God's commitment to you, if you are one of his own, his commitment to you is not based on something in you. It's based on something in him. Okay, God's commitment to you is not based on your faithfulness to him. It's based on his faithfulness to you. That's what that verse is saying. 
And when you know that's the case, when you know that God, he's committed to you because of his unchanging love, because of his unchanging grace, because of his faithfulness, if you know that, then you know that you can turn back to him. You can always turn back to him and he will always receive you. Do you see the assurance in that? That's the first assurance. The second one is in verse 23. And the assurance here is that when you've realised you've sinned, remember that you have a faithful advocate. Remember that you have a faithful advocate. And uh, here we read in verse 23 that Samuel says, Moreover for me, uh, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Remember, the people had said to Samuel, pray for us that we won't die. Do you know what they're doing there? They're, telling, they're saying to Samuel, can you represent us before God? Can you plead on our behalf for forgiveness? See, that's what we need when we've sinned. When we've sinned, we need someone to plead on our behalf. We need uh, what 1 John 2 verse 1 says, someone to speak to the Father in our defence. And who is that? It's Jesus Christ, the righteous one, says 1 John 2. See, Samuel, in this role as, as a prophet and priest, he's appointed to Jesus. He's appointed to Jesus' role as our advocate who pleads who speaks to the Father in our defence. And how does Jesus do that? What is it that Jesus prays on our behalf? He says to the Father, I want you to forgive them. I want you to be faithful and just and forgive them. That's what Jesus says to the Father. Be faithful and just and forgive them. See, faithful to your promise to forgive. But why just? Why does Jesus say, I want you to be just? And forgive them. I'll tell you why. It's because the penalty has already been paid. Okay, every sin we commit, it deserves the penalty of death. But Jesus, he came, he took that penalty on himself on the cross, paid for our sin in full. And so now when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. See, Jesus can say to his father, forgive them because their sin has been paid for and therefore he will and so that, that's what an assurance that is when you have sinned remember that you have a faithful advocate go to him and, and ask for him to pray on your behalf and then finally there's a the third assurance and that is go on walking in the light of the gospel go on walking in the light of the gospel so verse 24 says only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Now again, there's a, there's a logic in this verse. And the logic is this. Serve the Lord, obey him, be faithful to him, you know, fear and serve the Lord. But what's the reason you should do that? And the reason is noted there with that word for. For, consider what great things he has done for you. And that's the logic of the gospel. Why do you fear and obey the Lord? Is it because he's going to get you if you don't? <laughs> Is he going to strike you down if you don't? No, the logic goes like this. Fear and obey the Lord 
Because look at the things he has done for you. Look at the great things he has done for you. Look at how he has saved you. Look at how, while you are still his enemy, he sent his son to die for you. That's the great thing he has done for you. And if you know that he's done that for you, then what, what should you do? Fear and obey him. Serve him faithfully. That's the gospel logic. That's why I say, go on walking in light of the gospel. But then verse 25 does say, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And that's saying to us that there's, there is grace for sinners found in Jesus. But if you don't turn to Jesus, you know, if you do wickedly and, and reject your king, if you reject Jesus, then there is no grace because there is no grace outside of Jesus. Outside of Christ, everyone is swept away for all of eternity. But in him, there is forgiveness, there's restoration. And so that's the assurance. Put your trust in Christ. And having him as your king and your saviour, go on walking in fear, that's, that's reverent fear, and obedience, serving him faithfully.